My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. Hello, everyone, and thanks again for listening to this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. While I realize that every episode of the Just a Mom podcast has some sort of a trigger warning, I want to give you a special warning ahead of this episode. I am so appreciative of all the Just a Mom podcast guests and their open, honest, and sometimes incredibly difficult conversations. This episode contains specifics in regards to how someone died by suicide. If this is a trigger for you, I would suggest you skip this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm really excited to be joined today by a special guest here, um, not in studio, but virtually. I have Coach Jareem Dowling, the assistant men's basketball coach at Kansas State University with me um, on our virtual platform. So Coach Dowling, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Just a Mom podcast and to share your story with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really happy to be here and uh, can't wait to do this. Well, I'm excited to have you because you've been very vocal and public with your story. And I was just telling you before we started recording how much I appreciate you using your platform as a coach to to help other people understand um, about mental health and mental health issues. And by you doing that, I believe you're really helping other people know that it's okay to talk about it. And that's what my goal is with the Just a Mom podcast. And I'm wearing my purple today for you. So Awesome. I love it. <laughs> uh, I will admit I am not a K-State alum, I, but I, I love purple. I, I went to the other Big 12 purple school. Um, so, oh, sorry. <laughs> but purple's purple. And, yes. And... I have to tell you that I, along with probably most of the country, I was cheering really hard for you guys um, at the Elite Eight. My son-in-law is a K-State graduate, and he's the one who sent me the article, actually, that was in K-State Sports. So that's how okay. I learned about you and your story. And so he and my daughter, who live in upstate, got to travel to Manhattan, the Big Apple, to see the okay. Elite Eight game. And that was a lot of fun for them. So. Well. That's awesome. Tell them I said thanks. I will. And it was just, like I said, the rest of the country, I think we were all cheering um, for K-State because you guys just, it was just a fun year and a fun team and a fun coaching staff. And I'm excited to see what you guys do um, in the next basketball season. So, yeah. So good stuff. Thank you so much. It was definitely great. It was fun. And we have an amazing, amazing leader, and, uh, you know, we go as he goes, and we enjoy it as he enjoys it, and that's how he lives. You know, Christ and our families and who we are as human beings, then basketball. I love that. Priorities are in line. Absolutely. 
Let's talk a little bit about your story. We'll just do a little bit of background, if you would mind, wouldn't mind telling our listeners about your, you know, your upbringing, where you grew up, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I was I was born in Saint Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, I lived there until I was 15 years old, and uh, I happened to, you know, got an opportunity to move to the states um, just to better my education and my chances of just being something. I didn't know what that something was going to be, uh, but I moved to Delaware with the wonderful uh, judge, Rosalind Tolson, and her amazing family, Charles Tolson, George Tolson, Demetria Tolson, and Angie Tolson, her biological kids. Uh, but she had adopted over 40 kids in her lifetime. Wow. Uh, she wanted to have... 10 biological kids, but she couldn't. So she just, you know, started helping other kids out from all over. It could be Delaware, it could be the Virgin Islands. Uh, she was just a very loving, and still is, a very loving mom that just wanted to help people get ahead in life, whether it was sports, whether it was academics. Uh, I would say 75% of the people that she adopted didn't even play sports. So I was just fortunate enough to be one of them uh, who was recommended by my uh, junior high basketball coach at the time uh, to her. And honestly, my, the first year when I was 14, my mom said, hell no. <laughs> and then uh, the second year when the grades wasn't so right, she was like, okay, time for a change. And uh, I was able to move to Delaware, uh, graduated high school in Delaware, uh, didn't do too good in high school as far as SATs, so I had to go the junior college route. Uh, went to junior college for three years because I had an injury that you know made me stay longer while I was playing basketball. Played small Division One basketball at Maryland Eastern Shore, and right after that is when I got into coaching. I went back to Cecil, um, my community college, where I had the best experience as far as um, a coach that cared about me more than just basketball. And his name was Bill Lewitt. I went back there and started coaching and lived there for three years. Uh, had a lot of success on and off the floor with players. Then moved on to uh, a Division II Slipper Rock uh, in Pennsylvania. And after that, I was there for three years. That's where I lost my brother um, while being at that Division II school. And then moved on to Division I at Moorhead State in Kentucky. Uh, was there for 10 months, then moved on to Southern Mississippi. Uh, I was there for two years, left for three weeks, went to the University of Tennessee, uh, got demoted uh, while I went to Tennessee, then went back to Southern Miss with the new coach for a year. After that, uh, I was there for a year. Uh, NCAA investigation happened. And um, I had to sit out while they, you know, look for all the findings. And I did high school, prep school, basketball coach for a year, did that. And after the NCAA did its investigation, I got back into Division I. Uh, had the pleasure of working at Arkansas State for a year. Then I went to the University of North Texas, and I was there for five or six years. Don't – I'm not sure. I want to say six, but it might have been five. And then I was – at North Texas, I was just waiting for Coach Tang to get an opportunity. I didn't know where it was going to be, and I just remember him calling me and saying, you're ready? And I was like, 
yeah, I didn't even ask where we're going. I just said, yeah. Kansas. You know? and, uh, and, um, I'm here at, you know, this amazing place with amazing people and amazing town that, uh, this is going to, you know, sound cliche, but it's the truth. And I know, you know, I'm telling the truth. It is amazing for my mental here. Mm. It is amazing. And people who are K-State alums or K-State students who I know, which there are lots of them, call Manhattan man-happiness yes. for those outside of Kansas listening to this. So why do you think they call Manhattan, Kansas, man-happiness? I, I don't—when I, I first got here, I was like, that's a real bold name. Mm-hmm, it is. And I'm like— that's that's kind of it's kind of low key cocky, you know, right, like yeah, man, happiness. <laughs> and uh, poof, probably took about two weeks for me to start drinking the Kool Aid, and I was like, okay, this place really is a happy place. And uh, the people are just amazing, mm. you know, from my neighbors uh, to people in town. I don't, you know, being transparent, I think I might be the only person in a year's time that actually blew my horn in somebody else in this town. Wow. Because they, they might have cut me <laughs> off, you know? So, and I don't even know if that's the man happiness thing to do, so I apologize to that person, <laughs> whoever it is, you know? But um, it's it's definitely an amazing place, man. Uh, people are, are confident in who they are. They're confident in where they live. They're happy with a simple life. And... Um, it's just, it's, it's beautiful, you know, a lot of open space, a lot of scenery, a lot of trees, a lot of simple things that we take for granted on a daily basis that's uh, beautiful about mm. this place, but it's the people. Well, that is good to hear, and I know all the K-Staters listening are, you know, like, you know, email, isn't that how you do it? <laughs> Ema. 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 I said it wrong, email. Okay. So, uh, at that, for those listening who do not know what that means, that's every man a wildcat. So, yes. All right. You talked a little bit, just briefly mentioned uh, the death of your brother. Let's go back to that time. I believe you said in the article that that was in 2010 yeah. when your brother died. Tell me a little bit more about that, if you would, please. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's different. Um, it was a normal day. Normal day. Him smiling. Uh, I think he smiled the most in my family. You know, he was he was like really outgoing, always smiling. And everybody in the world associates a smile with everything being okay. So, again, like I just said, it's a normal day. He's smiling. I actually had given him my car at the time to like have because he was being so responsible. He had a job, had a girlfriend. He was doing really, really well in school. And um, he was just doing exceptional like because he wanted to go to the Army. And I told him, nah, try college, you know. And then he really didn't want to go to college. And uh, I kind of challenged him probably in the first two months of living with me. Um, Got him a job at McDonald's. I went over there without him knowing. Uh, forgive me, brother, but I went over there without him knowing, and um, I said uh, to the manager, "Give him all the yucky jobs, mm. you know." And he gave him like clean the grill, clean the bathroom, and he would come home pissed, you know, after working just dirty and smelly. 
And I was like, what's wrong? He said, man, I'm doing all this work. I was like, if you do your schoolwork, you don't have to do this. Mm. And uh, man, he buckled in and he was six months away from graduating in three years. Wow. He was doing exceptional. Uh, he, was, he was just blossoming um, in the classroom, in the community, uh, had just a great way about him with people. And uh, it was amazing to see his transformation, you know, and how hard he worked and how he carried himself. I mean, he was an umpire at a little league in town with the little kids. So all the parents and all the little kids love Leo. They was like, Leo, Leo, we'll be in the supermarket. And they'd be like, Leo, Leo. And um, he actually uh, got another job because he was working like two or three jobs after he like, you know, got out of the McDonald's thing. Uh, he started working at Adidas because Adidas was his favorite brand. You know, it's he just loved Adidas. And um, he had a job at one of their, what is it called? Their outlet mm -hmm. stores. And he came home one day and he was just excited about Adidas. And he was like, uh, man, I really like Adidas. So he was like, you know what? I'm living my life three stripes at a time. And I was like, wow, that's... Mm -hmm. That's really nice, you know. Like, man, I wish, I wish I knew somebody in Adidas to make that line for him, you know, because I thought it was a exceptional line. I I, tr I actually tried to like email people because I was so like, a like what's the word I'm looking for? I was so enamored with the fact that he came up with something so simple but yet so powerful mm -hmm. uh, about Adidas, and I'm like, man, I wish I could get connected with somebody with Adidas to help him give them that word and, you know, mm -hmm. collaborate something between the two. And um, I just remember walking into the store one day when he was working and the uh, GM uh, of the store actually put the quote up on the wall. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. And I was like, this is cool, you know? Uh, but neither there, um, he, uh, it was just a normal day. Uh, it was probably 48 hours after our family had visited from the Virgin Islands. My mom, his dad, my sis, me, me and his sister, and my sister's newborn baby. And uh, it was just a normal day. And being totally, totally, totally transparent. Uh, he dropped my mom and he dropped my mom and his dad off to the airport. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it was a really early day, so I made him do it. And he came back that morning, he was like really, really bothered. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, man, mom didn't give me a hug. You know, she was, she was being mean, you know? I was like, man, you know how mom gets. Like, don't worry about it, don't let it bother you, you know? And I guess it bothered him. I don't know why, to what extent his dad hugged him, mom didn't hug him, I don't know. And, uh, Probably a week went by, things were normal, doing schoolwork, but it's during exam time. So he's studying, he's by himself a lot. And this is when I think Vigio, the TV, had just came out. So he had made some money from one of his checks that was really good, and he wanted to buy himself a flat screen TV. So he bought himself a flat screen TV, he was in his room a lot, but he was still being active and being him. And I just remember the day, I know he had a project. He had a project, he had a date with his girlfriend, and he did both of those things that day. We talked, 
And I was hanging out with my next door neighbor at the time. And I had to take one of my players to the, to the hospital for surgery the next morning. And I just remember the, the night before he, he got a haircut, the same day he did a date and his work with his, uh, his classmates. And he got his favorite food from this restaurant in town called Kafaro's. And he ate it and we talked and we communicated. I was like, yo, Leah, I'm leaving early in the morning. I gotta take RJ to the hospital for surgery. And I was like, if you need a ride to school, Neighbors gonna take you to school. Um, make sure you up. And we always used to like leave the door open because he would like forget to like take his keys and he would lock himself out. So I even gave my neighbor a key. So I'm at the hospital and RJ's got pushed back into surgery. I'm just sitting there on my phone. My phone is ringing. My neighbor calls, but I'm not answering. You know. But then I finally answered. I was like, "What's up?" And they're like, come home. I'm like, come home for what? You know? And they won't tell me. So I was like, I'm not leaving the hospital until you tell me for what. And it was like, Leo's dead. And I was like, what? And uh, being transparent, driving, I, I went in the room to tell RJ. I was like, yo, I got to go. And he's like, what's wrong? I was like, uh, Leo... Um, Leo's dead, you know, he he knew Leo because he played on my team and Leo was always around. And RJ got out of the bed in his gown and said, you're not driving, I'm coming. Oh. So he, he like forgot about the surgery, you know, like I'm driving you home. And I'm very thankful for him driving me home because uh, it was a hard call to call to my parents. Um, to tell him a week later that he's gone. You know, I don't even know how to make that call, right. you know? And mm. I promise you, uh, if he didn't leave that hospital, I had flashes in my head. Like, I had to drive over a bridge. And I, 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 I pretty much wanted to drive off the bridge because I, I didn't know what to tell my family, you know? And uh, it was, it was, it was surreal. I wish it, I wish it on nobody. 20 years old, his whole life in front of him, he's always smiling. Um, he was so happy. And I've seen him upset but I've never seen him sad. So I think there's a difference, you know? Being upset, you probably can get over something, but when you're sad, it lingers for a while. And I've, I've never seen him sad, and uh, he, he was gone, and I called my mom, I called my dad and my sister, in uh, the scream, I felt like it was my fault for the longest because he was living with me, you know? And uh, it was it was tough. I went to work that day to like not think about it. When I got back, um, 
the ambulance was there. Everybody held me back because they didn't want me to see the body. You know, they didn't want me to see him like that. I just remember them putting me in the in the house next door, and them rolling out this body, and it was it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. It didn't, it didn't make any sense. So I probably went and just worked so hard for so long. Uh, I went home. We had the funeral. When the funeral happened, I was trying to leave the same day because. I was just trying to escape it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was, it was painful. And it was more painful because I had no answers. Mm-hmm. You know? I had nothing to tell anybody. I couldn't tell him I saw this coming. I couldn't tell him he told me something. I couldn't tell him how it happened. I couldn't tell them, I, I just, I didn't have an answer. And uh, it was, it was, it was painful, man. My sister, my mom and his dad got a divorce mm. years later. It just has like a trickle down effect right. that people think when the incident happened, like that's it. It's so many residual effects from that moment on that was really, really hard. Yeah. And I want to say for eight, maybe seven years, I fought it. And everybody in my family was begging me to go to therapy. And I was like, nah, I'm good. You know, uh, I'm good. I don't need to go to therapy. And one day it got me, yeah. you know, where I didn't know what it was, but it got me to where I wasn't sleeping for three or four days at the time. And I didn't know what was going on. And I started reaching out to people because I know I didn't feel good, you know? Like, thoughts of harming myself was in my head. But I know I couldn't do it because of the pain I still had from him and the pain everybody else still had from him. So I just started reaching out to people that I love and people that know me and just telling them I ain't feeling good. And nobody could nobody could answer. I couldn't answer them while I wasn't feeling good. So it was kind of like annoying them that after like the 10th call, it was annoying them. Not the first two, three, four, five calls that I was calling them and telling them, like, I don't feel good. I don't know what's wrong. I'm not sleeping. Uh, I just, I feel like everybody's watching me. I feel, I just don't feel right, you know? And my my guardian who adopted me, I called her and we was on the phone and she was on the phone with my sister and it was three-way. And I said to him, I said, why is nobody listening to me? I'm talking and I'm telling y'all I'm not okay and nobody's listening to me. And she's like, we are listening to you, but you're not telling us what's wrong. And I'm like, I don't know what's wrong, but I know I don't feel right. I was like, what is it going to take for me to hurt myself for y'all to believe me? You know? And, like, my guardian, like, she hung up the phone. 
she called her son. Uh, thank God Charles is uh, is a doctor in Dallas, and I was living in Denton at the time, uh, Denton, mm-hmm. Texas, and it's probably a 30, 40-minute drive. And he called, he's like, yo, I'm coming for you. And he came for me, and he picked me up, and he's like, what's wrong, what's wrong? You know, are you taking drugs? You know, talk to me. I can't help you if you don't tell me. I was like, I don't know, you know, and uh, <laughs> I even said, um, I don't know. I don't know. I might have AIDS. I don't know. I'm just like, you just start putting all kind of thoughts in your head, you know, from when I was younger and <laughs> forgive me, but just reckless living, you know, mm-hmm. being a young adult. So I was like, I don't know. I might have AIDS. I don't know. Uh, he's like, you taking pills, you taking drugs. Like, like, you know, what are you doing? Talk to me. I was like, I don't know. So he took me to the hospital, gave me an AIDS test. He was like, you don't have an AIDS, you don't have AIDS, you know? And he's like, so what else, you know? So he's like trying to like check the boxes of all the thoughts I have in my head to show me that I'm okay, but I'm still not okay. And I, I stay with him for like a month. Because the following three minutes are a description of how Coach Dowling's brother died by suicide. I want to honor the story that he wanted to share with all of us so I'm leaving it in for those who are able to listen to it. If this is a trigger for you, or you think it may be too difficult for you to hear, pause and fast forward about four minutes. And um, the way my the way my brother um, the way my brother committed suicide, uh, it was it was it was crazy and. I apologize for the details and the, the of it, but he was in a closet uh, where the the rod in the closet. My brother was like six four, six five. The rod in the closet was the height of his chest. So like, you know, he he sat in a chair mm. and did it to himself. So that's. I hope it that's how much pain he was in that he sat in the chair and moved the chair and did it to himself. Yeah. And when you see it on movies, when you hear about it, it's usually the opposite way. He's standing on the chair. He sat in the chair and did it. So that just it baffled me. I'm like, man, what was so wrong? that he really legitimately wanted to do that to himself, you know? And uh, when I was living with my brother, I I just, I was taking long showers, trying to feel better. And one day I I went to my brother and I was like, look, man, can I I borrow a chair, you know, to like sit in the shower, you know? Like I legitimately wanted to sit in the shower, okay? Like, but, because I was just, I didn't want to sit on the floor, but I was in the shower taking 20, 30-minute showers. But I just wanted to sit there and let the water just run on me. And he was like, uh-uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you're not getting the chair. You know, you, you're not getting the chair. Because he knew the details. He's like, he's like, you're not getting the chair. So he's like, we're going to the hospital. I said, okay. So we go to the hospital. He goes out the room. He's talking to a doctor. I don't know what he's telling the doctor. And then he came back in and he said, look, bro. I love you, and there's a lot of people that love you. I want to help you. And he said, 
this is going to be an aggressive way of helping you. But I kind of have to like help you shock yourself back. You know, you, you need a break from everything. Um, and I just saw they start taking blood tests, all this type of stuff. And uh, you know what? Let me let me let me uh, let me go back. The feeling started when I was at Arkansas State, but I didn't know what it was. And that would have been several years prior. One year prior One to year going prior. to North okay. Texas. Yeah, it started there, and I was embarrassed. Because I was going on, I was on my way to, I was on my way to Baltimore to see my daughter. I just remember being on the airplane and researching University of North Texas. Now, this is how crazy this thing is. It's the school slipper out university that I was at with my brother. The colors was green and white. Mm-hmm. University of North Texas is green yeah. and white. So I just remember, all I remember is opening my phone and Googling North Texas to like see the facilities. And it was green and white. And it triggered me. And I didn't know, I didn't know it was like triggering me because I was on the flight and I became really nervous. This is, I'm probably flown 1,500 times in my life. And I was triggered. I got off the plane. I wasn't feeling good. I had a next connection flight. I went to the front desk of the help center in Chicago. And I said, I think somebody spiked my drink on the plane. And they was like, I don't think somebody would do that, you know, because I was just feeling really, really anxious and anxiety was high. And, you know, uh, I called a couple of my friends. And I told them I don't feel good. I don't feel good. I called my coworker at the time at North Texas, Ross Hyde. I was like, yo, bro, I don't know what's going on with me. But I don't feel good. I might get in trouble here in the airport because I feel like everybody's watching me and I'm just trying to sit in one place so I don't get in trouble. So I called one of my best friends who's no longer here and I said, I need help. I need help. I need help. I need help. So I told the people at the front desk, they got the ambulance to come to the airport. They checked my blood pressure. They checked all this stuff. And it was like, you're fine. You know, you're fine. You're, you're, you're okay. And I just couldn't get on the flight. So they was like, oh, we'll book you a flight for the next day. So I checked into a hotel in Chicago, but I couldn't go to sleep. I was freaking out. I couldn't go to sleep. So I went to the hospital in Chicago. You, you took yourself or you checked yourself out? I took myself okay. to the hospital in Chicago. I'm in there. I'm like... They're asking me what's wrong. They're running tests. They're running all this stuff. You know, I said, my head, something is in my head, you know. So there's like, you want a CT scan? And I'm like, I don't know, but I don't feel right. So I went to the hospital. They gave me all these tests. They called my sister on FaceTime. They tell my sister I'm good. So I decided to leave the hospital. So I left the hospital, went back to the hotel, and I wasn't feeling good. So I called my friend again that same night, probably a couple hours later. And now this time they sent the ambulance to come get me. So now I'm being rolled out on the stretcher going back to the same hospital. And as I'm going back to the same hospital, we're, I don't know, we're taking a back road and you know how you're in the back of the ambulance and you can see what's going on. 
So I'm I'm freaking out and I'm saying to them, um, where where are you taking me? Where are you taking me? You know, like I'm not trusting the people in the hospital. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, where are you taking me? Why are we going down this dark road? You thinking you're going to a hospital? You can see bright lights and all this stuff. And I could tell they were looking at me like, what is going on with this dude? You know. So now I'm here for the second time. I, I now I'm here for the second time. So I'm there, and while I'm there, they run through tests. They put me in a room. I call Coach Tang this time. I was like, Coach, I'm not doing good. He calls a friend in Chicago to bring me some food. I ate the food. He told a friend to like stay in the lobby, check on me, make sure I'm good. So this friend, this friend uh, stays with me until probably the end of the night and takes me back to the hotel, okay? And I'm still freaking out. But this time, I didn't know Coach Tang had called one of my coworkers, Dr. Hunter Taylor, who's now at Ole Miss, and he told them, uh, I need you to get to Chicago. I don't care how much it costs. I need you to get to Chicago. I need you to get to Dream. So it's 2 or 3 in the morning, and he knocks on my door. I didn't know he was wow. coming. Uh, he left his wife and kids to come be at my side. So I, op- I, I didn't open the door. I looked at the peephole. And I seen him, I was like, what do you want? Even though I know who he was, you know, I was like, what do you want? He's like, man, I'm here to check on you, let me in. So I was like, nah, I'm not letting you in. And then he was like, have you eaten? I was like, nah, not in a while. So he went and got pizza and he came back and knocked on my door and was like, yo, I got some pizza for you to eat. You need to eat something. So I was like, no, I'm good. So Dr. Hunter Taylor, he sat on the floor in the lobby, not in the lobby, in the hallway of the hotel eating the pizza and he was like, I'm just going to stay here until you uh, open the door and let you know that I'm here. So he ended up getting the hotel room right next door to me. And uh, my flight was scheduled for the next day and I didn't want to get on the flight. So a whole nother day goes by. He's there. He's away from his family. I'm going through my thoughts in my head. I go back to the hospital. Same hospital. This time when I, same hospital. This time when I go back to the hospital, they check me out again. But after that, they were more quicker. Okay, and they were like, "You're fine. Nothing's wrong." And they actually told security to tell me, like, basically get off the premises. Wow. And you were you know, still like, in oh. struggling. <laughs> oh. I'm still wow. struggling. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling them, I need help. I need help. But thank God my friend is there with me because he was there in the lobby and he was like, yo, we're, we're going to leave. We'll end up leaving. Uh, and I went to see my daughter the day after that. One of my brothers, um, George Tolson, he flew from Baltimore and drove me back to Baltimore from Chicago because I was so scared to get on the flight. So he drove me back. Um, I slept the whole way. Uh, initially when he came it took me about four hours to come out the room to leave with him he was just like I'm ready when you're ready I'm not going to force you you know mom his mom his biological mom my foster mom was calling me and telling me you know get in the car leave etc etc so I left fast forward spent a week with my daughter my head coach at the time told me Take as much time as you need. 
so I tried to speed up the process because I didn't want to lose my future mm-hmm. job, which was University of North Texas. I hadn't signed the papers. I hadn't done anything like that yet. So uh, I flew back to Arkansas, and I was... I got back in Arkansas and, you know, it was time to pack and get ready. Because when you're a college coach, you move really, really fast. And, you know, I'm by myself. I called my trainer, Will Roth, um, who was my trainer at the time. I said, hey, bro, I'm not feeling good. You mind coming and staying here at my house with me? Um, I just, I don't know what's going on. So him being the brother that he is, he came, spend the night with me. Just so happened... I had to go, like do some recruiting and I had to go to like three different schools, but I hadn't slept in like two days. So I knew that I couldn't make those drives. So I paid my trainer 200 bucks to take off work to drive me to those places. I tried to sleep in the car while he was driving, couldn't. Uh, I called Coach Tang and I just remember him telling Coach Tang, he's really anxious. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but he's really anxious and he's going through something. I don't know what it is, you know, but he's really anxious. So I did recruiting. He dropped me to three different schools like Illinois, St. Louis, all these places. And he was just being awesome. Yeah. And uh, fast forward, because I had to give you that backstory. Sure. Fast forward. I'm with my brother now and he's telling me... Uh, I'm going to get you the help you need. You just got to trust me and allow me to help you. So I just remember him saying, all right, we're, we're going to, after he talked to the doctors, et cetera, he said, we're going to check you into a mental hospital. I was like, oh, crap. Everybody going to think I'm crazy, you know? So I go into a mental hospital. Um, I was scared. It's probably the first time in, what's that, 2003? It's the first time in nine years I had to take my chains off because mm. yeah. you can't go into a mental hospital and it was like, you got to take your chains off, your jewelry. I'm like, holy crap, Like, what's going on here? I just remember them putting me in a room uh, with the shower that you got to push the button and it comes out and it stops after like five seconds. So it's kind of like a... I don't know what kind of shower it is, but it's a crazy shower. And you got the metal toilets. So I'm like, I'm like, man, what is going on? Like, why am I really here? Sleeping on a little twin bed. The doors open. They have doctors checking your room every three hours to check on you. You know, you have those paper slippers. And like I realized this since the like the seriousness now of what where I'm at and where I'm at. I'm hearing people screaming. I'm seeing people in straight jackets, you know, and there was like a schedule that you have every day in there. And there was like classes, you know, but I didn't know this was therapy, but there were classes to take, like activity classes. So what I did when I went in the first time, I did all the activities because seeing the situation and the environment I was in, I was spooked, you know? I was like, all right, I got to get up out of here. And did you here. think you know, that you belonged there? Or were you thinking, like, I don't belong here. I don't know why I'm here. I was here. saying, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I was saying, I don't, I don't belong here. I don't know why I'm here, you know? And 
I did every activity because I felt like, because there was a lot of cameras in there. So I feel like they were studying people, watching people. So I said, if I could act as normal as possible, they'll tell me I'm okay and I can leave. I didn't know that a mental hospital was like, you, I, I don't know if I'm saying it right. You can be voluntary or involuntary to leave. Mm -hmm, right. You can leave right. on your own. I didn't know that. So my brother came and checked on me. I was like, yeah, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. This is, this is awesome. This is great. I'm in group studies. I got NFL players. I got doctors. I got judges, like, in the same group with me. So I'm like, man, what is going on here? Like, holy crap. Like, this dude's a judge. This dude's in the NFL. Like, like holy crap. Like, there's other people going through what I'm going through. I don't know what their situation is, but, like, all right, he's a judge, so I'm not that mm -hmm. bad. Okay, he's an NFL player, so, okay, all right, you know. And um, I did all the activities, and I was like, bro, I'm fine. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to attack, you know, get back on my feet. I left, and 48 hours, I crashed even harder. This is the first of a two-part series with Coach Jareem Dowling. My conversation with Coach Dowling will continue on the next episode of the Just a Mom podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share these episodes. And thanks again for listening to the Just a Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Wanna see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.